Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I think there may be some who have slipped in today and were not here last night. Is that right? Anyone? Well, a warm welcome to you. My name is Rupert, Rupert Charkham. I'm married to Liz. It's in the second row here. And um, a very brief recap of the theme I've chosen to address together is how can we be more fruitful for Jesus Christ? And uh, that's the overarching theme of all the talks that I'm going to give. And the idea is that we're fleshing out uh, Jesus' game plan to his friends. He, he said to them in John chapter 15, You didn't choose me. You didn't call me. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit that will last. So when I'm standing in front of my congregation in Cambridge, uh, I think to myself that God's plan for you guys is not that you're going to be pew potatoes or couch potatoes. You're going to be fruitful for Jesus Christ. And the question I ask myself, and we're going to discuss, is so what could help us be fruitful? Sustaining this walk of following Christ, or maybe just setting out in it for some, what will turn out to be productive? And in this first talk, I'm going to address the building block, which I'm calling an essential encounter, an essential encounter. And the moment I wrote those words on the page and looked at them myself, I thought, well, hang on a minute, Rupert, um, aren't you slightly over-egging this? You know, isn't it going to fall into one of those annoying categories which uh, you see in the newspapers and adverts, things like this, um, a hundred places you must visit before you die. And, you know, a hundred books that you should read before you die. I googled that, and I actually rather preferred The Guardian, who published a thousand books that you should read before you die. I thought that was slightly more optimistic. Then I got into the swing of this, and I thought, you know, we could do a Christian version. Two places you could visit after you die. <laughs> but... Uh, anyway, <clears throat> I, I, I have come to conclude that no, it is not. This is not an exaggeration. This is an essential encounter. This is, that's not just to uh, <clears throat> over-hyper point. This is absolutely an essential encounter if we're going to bear fruit for God. Now, in, um, in each of these talks I'm going to give, although they're not on the life of Moses, they're not, uh, I am going to use Moses' life just very briefly to... Uh, be an example of a principle of what I'm talking about. It's a simple point, though. Before you can bear fruit for Christ, before we can bear fruit for Christ, we need to meet Christ. And I'm sure you remember in the story of Moses that, well, I'll read it to you from Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending a flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. But the place you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. 
And then God goes on uh, and gives him his mission for life, if you like, and says, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And the key question, and I'm very encouraged that we're here this morning, because it must be, I can only think the only reason that you and I are here is because we are in earnest. We want to seek out the living God. You wouldn't be here otherwise. We want to be in contact with the Lord. Now, if you know the scriptures, and I know that uh, you do, you will remember a chap who really wanted to meet with Jesus. Uh, He was a bigwig. He was a member of a Jewish ruling council. His name was Nick. Well, actually, I'm being economical with the truth, aren't I? His name was Nicodemus. And he went by night. He went by night to see this traveling teacher, this rabbi, Jesus. And it's a very informative conversation that the two of them have. Not least because it's a dialogue between experts. Now, you will have noticed that when Jesus talks to people, he talks to them in a way that they will appreciate and they will understand. So he talks to fishermen about being fishers of men. Uh, he talks to the woman at the well in Samaria about drawing water. And now you'd have thought, here's a real opportunity for him to get theologically deep and profound because he's meeting an expert in the law, a a guy who spent his life pursuing God. You know, to use a sporting analogy, which would you rather see, Andy Murray playing Roger Federer or either of them playing me? Uh, You're meant to say, no, not you, Rupert. And the reason is because, you know, you put two experts on the court together and they exercise one another, they push the game up, don't they? And yet the conversation doesn't really go like that at all with this man, Nicodemus. Jesus brings him down to earth, saying something incredibly straightforward and simple in many, many ways. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you must be born again. And that's a phrase really anyone can understand. Life's got to start in a radically different way for you, Nicodemus. Something's got to happen to you. You're going to change big time. Many years ago now, I was listening to a tape of a pastor in America, Bill Hybels, who founded a church uh, which has grown and mushroomed and mushroomed in Chicago called Willow Creek. And Willow Creek uh, had this a strap line of what they were trying to do. And it, it was a, a well-drilled church, so everyone learned the strap line. And um, one thing that Bill Hybels told a story of, he said in the summer, they ran a summer school. And a professor from a university whose actual expertise was in business management, and this chap was not a Christian, um, would give Bill Hybels a week of his time, and come and tutor as part of a program of, of leadership. And he, he wasn't used to a Christian context, but he was used to a management context. And so they were coming to the end of this week, and he was walking up and down the classroom, and, and there were all these students. And he stopped in front of one girl's desk, and he said to this girl, So, you've been in Willow Creek for a week. What's the purpose of this church? And she dutifully trotted out the strap line, which was to turn irreligious people into fully devoted followers of Christ. And 
he thought, well, you know, that's right, because that's what this church says it exists for. But he thought, uh, I better push her a bit harder. So he said, and what do you think of that as a purpose? And there was a pause. And then she looked up and she said, well, if I might say so, I'd say that's one hell of an ask. And then she realized that was somewhat ironic use of language. But, but she got it right. You know, when you think about it, that's what following Christ is all about. We, as the people of God, foundational is we're inviting people, aren't we, to step away from being irreligious people and become fully devoted to Jesus Christ. That's a huge ask. That's massive. And we who have enrolled as Christians, we've said yes to that. We've said yes to that. And sometimes we need reminding quite how big this decision is. You know, it's much bigger than any other decision you've ever made in your life, although you have no doubt made very big ones. And when we stand in front of some decisions, they look awesome, don't they? You know, going back years to what A-levels you studied or what kind of job would you get or where you'd live or whether you'd be single or who you got married to and whether you'd have a family and how many children you'd have and when to retire and which church you worship in. But without question, without question, the biggest decision you and I have ever made and will ever make is to turn our lives over to Jesus Christ. And the reason I'm so sure that that is the biggest decision we ever make is because it then impacts every subsequent decision. You never make another decision in your life in quite the same way, because now you always refer back to him and say, what's your view on this? Wouldn't you like to say as I make this decision? More is being asked of us when we decide to follow Christ than what kind of car you buy or um, any of those things I've mentioned. We're turning our lives over to someone who says lots of lovely things to his followers. Uh, I mean, he says... I'll give you life to the full. Follow me and you'll have abundant life. He says things that I find instantly attractive, like, come to me all of you who are weary and burdened. Anyone know anyone who's weary and burdened? And, and then Jesus doesn't say, and I'll really show you what exhaustion is like. <laughs> he, he says, and I will give you, well, one or two of us know it, I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm humble and gentle of heart and you'll find rest for yourselves. And I find that enormously appealing. But he also said, if anyone would like to come after me, he must deny himself and follow, deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And he says such challenging things as all men will hate you because of me. So it's a big ask, isn't it? It's not trivial, this essential encounter. I like the story of Blondin, the tightrope walker. When I googled him to find out a bit more accurately what he did with his life, I found that uh, what he did in June 1859, he set up a tightrope at the bottom of the Niagara Falls. It was 1,100 feet wide, the length of a rope. It was only three and a quarter inches in diameter. 
and it was strung up 160 feet above the water. And what he used to do day after day was he would, first of all, walk across this tightrope, which people found extraordinary enough. And then he would uh, do a number of theatrical variations. He, he, he would take his manager, a man called Harry Colcord, and um, put him on his back and walk across and back again. And then he would take a wheelbarrow and walk across and back again. Sometimes he would walk with a chair to the middle and, and put this chair, one leg, on the, on the rope and stand on the chair. And then he'd fry an egg and eat an omelette and all this kind of thing. And, of course, the crowd watching him would love it. And they would kind of goad him on to the next bit of daring. And um, he loved it, too. And, you know, there is a kind of synergy that happens in these situations. And as he came back with his manager and in the wheelbarrow, he shouted to the crowd and said, So, do you think I could do this with two people in the wheelbarrow? And they all said, Yes! And he said, Okay, who's first? <laughs> and at that point, you know, you realize at that point, well, there's risk here. There's trust here. And... The thing is, that is exactly, it seems to me, what Jesus calls us to in this essential encounter. That is a walk of faith where we're saying to him, I'll be in the wheelbarrow. You can push it wherever you like. You can do whatever you like. I will trust you. I will trust you. That's what it means, it seems to me, to be born again. It means that we now hand over our lives and say, Jesus, you died for me. You lived for me. I'm trusting you. And you need the radical encounter, that's my point, simple point, a radical encounter with Jesus Christ before this can happen. You can't be an effective Christian without Christ. For years, I lived my life ignoring God and trying to keep away from Jesus. And it was in my last year at university, at Exeter University, uh, that I shared my house with um, four people, and one of them was a Christian. And all my friends, all my friends who knew me well, said, Rupert, this is going to be a disaster. You, you know your attitude. You and Christians are just combustible. It, it's not a good idea. You know. And I think I was oversure, cocksure of myself. I said, it'll be fine. It'll be absolutely no problem. I said, what we'll do is we'll get on, and uh, <clears throat> the day will come, and it'll be fine. We'll have what Saddam Hussein would have called the mother of all battles. And, and that'll put the subject to bed. So we, we started sharing this house beginning of the university year, and I thought it wouldn't be polite to have a row in the first week. So, so we go, first week is going quite well. And the second week, I thought, no, yeah, really. You know, we're, we're, we're all enjoying each other's company. Somewhere, I think it was around the third or fourth week, I got out of bed for what students would euphemistically call brunch sometime late on in the day. And we all met around the breakfast table around lunchtime. And I just knew in my juices, this was the day. And, and I was quite excited about it. And, and I started, rather like, as, as many of you will have heard, what we call testimonies, people tell their story of how they become a Christian. And after you've done it a few times, you can kind of go into automatic pilot. And I had so often tried to take Christian's faith away from them. I just was in automatic pilot. I just went into diatribe mode, you know, eat a Christian for breakfast. And I was well into laying into this person when two things went wrong. 
First of all, I, I could see as I was attacking this Christianity business, her face started to crumple and she started to look really hurt. And I remember feeling in my bones, hey, this isn't meant to happen. This is just fun we're meant to be having. You know, I'm really enjoying this. This is like persuading someone that they shouldn't support Chelsea football team, they should support something else. This is no big deal. And she looked hurt. I, I, it, hey, and I kind of felt a check in my spirit, in my bones, just out of decency, really. You know, hey, this isn't meant to be like this. And the second thing that went wrong is when I eventually kind of petered out, because you can only keep punching for a certain length of time, when I eventually petered out, instead of meeting what I had to say with a similarly robust kind of defense, she asked me just two very simple questions, and, and they were quietly spoken. This is what I remember. They were not aggressive, and she was not actually um, challenged by what I was saying. And her simple question was this, have you ever read an account of Jesus' life for yourself? And I'm not sure that I was required to answer that. It was just a question. And there was a pause. And then she carried on and she said, because the thing you attack and the person I love are just miles apart, miles apart. And she said, I can't really see much point in discussing it until you've read an account of Jesus' life. And she said, until then, she said, you may never choose to do that. But if you do, she said, I would recommend you read John's Gospel. Not very long. And then we can talk about it, if you want to. But if you don't want to, fair enough. And, you know, there are a gazillion subjects we could talk about, and then we won't have a row. And I thought, well, that's different. It wasn't really how I thought the conversation should have gone or would have gone. And sometime later, not very long later, I I didn't actually own a Bible. And I was not going to waste my money on buying a Bible either. But I did know there was this room tucked away in the university uh, where there were a stack of these little red Bibles, actually the Gideon New Testaments. And I knew where they were. And I made my way to that room during the following week. And I kind of sidled around to where this stack of New Testaments were. And then I looked around very self-conscious to make sure no one was looking. And then I pinched one, which I figured, you know, they were there to be pinched. That was the object. So was... And, and, um, and I made my way off during the course of, of the next week. Well, actually, it's coming back to me now as I tell the story, but I do actually remember um, back in, in this farmhouse where we live, I was going to read this book, John's Gospel, and then I thought, Christians pray, don't they? So I remember actually getting on my knees to pray, and then I thought, this is a complete farce. I really don't even know who to pray to or how to pray. So I got on my knees, no prayer said. But I actually think that God knew that what was going on in my heart, the prayer in my heart was, and I know this was the case, was, God, I really don't know if you're there at all. But Christians invested an awful lot of faith in this book. They believe that in this book, people find a way to know someone called Jesus, and I'm going to read it, and if you're there, it's up to you. I can't make you reveal yourself, but if you reveal yourself, I'll do something about it. If you don't reveal yourself, this book goes in the bin along with many others. And I read John's Gospel, and quite early on, I came to uh, a little sentence that probably the majority of you know off by heart. But I hadn't read it before, and it was John chapter 3, verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son 
that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And I actually remember putting this book down and saying out loud to the God who I wasn't sure was there, you're not making this easy for yourself. I remember saying, you know, I don't even love the people who I share this house with. I certainly don't love all the people on my course. I certainly don't love all the people of Exeter. How on earth are you going to prove that you love the whole world? You know, God so loved the world, he sent his son. I thought, you're really making life tough. And of course, by the end of a book, I had come to see uh, some kind of answer to that. My views on Jesus changed dramatically as I read John's Gospel. I, I discovered that he wasn't the least bit like I thought he'd be. You know, I, I, to be honest, I, I thought I'd been to a, a school which required you to go to, to chapel every single day. And uh, I'd been a music scholar there. I'd sat up in the choir and I'd listened to all these preachers. So I thought Jesus was going to be like these preachers. Uh, I thought he was going to go mumble, 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 mumble. <laughs> boring, boring, boring. Are you asleep yet? Yeah, amen. And, and that's what I thought it was going to be like. And, and it was horrific to find he wasn't the least bit like that. He was crystal clear who he thought he was. By the end of a book, I'd read about his death on the cross. And the thing that really haunted me, I went for long walks on Dartmoor on my own. The, the thing that haunted me was that I didn't have a quest, an answer to the question I felt was coming my way. I felt that God would say to me, so Rupert, what did you make of the death of my son upon the cross? And I was kept awake at night by that. I just thought, I don't have an adequate answer. Uh, in fact, I had a very almost blasphemous answer, really. I kept remembering what Groucho Marx said to the dustbin men when they came around. <laughs> he apparently said, no thanks, we don't need any today. And I, I thought you know, that, kind of, um, that kind of flippant answer to God about the cross was not going to be adequate. Because it isn't adequate. And... So I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I realized he died for me, and I wanted to receive that forgiveness and that love. It's an essential encounter. You must be born again. And although I don't like to talk about it, and don't talk about it very often, that wasn't really at all the end of a story, or even the beginning, end of the beginning of a story, because I think I also felt tremendous, con- what I would now call a technical term, really, conviction of sin. An amazing realization that actually I wasn't half as good as I thought I was. And that looking at the life of Jesus Christ, there was an awful lot to apologize for and to be forgiven. To exchange. And although it led to enormous difficulties with my family and enormous challenge for most of my friends, it also opened up a period of great, great fruit in that uh, a wonderful adventure had begun. But all I'm saying here is, for goodness sake, don't try and live a Christian life without Christ, because it can't be done. can't be done. And this isn't a, a decision that you make once in your life. This is a decision that we have to make daily. And I had a feeling, you know, as I wrote this talk, that for many of us sitting in this room, you could well be forgiven for saying to yourself, look, I've been a Christian for years. And I've paid good money to come on this church weekend. And the first 20 minutes, you really haven't said anything new at all. And I want to say, well, listen up, because this bit's for you. It's not enough. It's not enough to look back 
and say, well, you know, in my case, on December the 8th, 1980, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I must have something to say about him today. I must have something to say about him today. A few years ago, I was reading Paul's second letter to Timothy. It's the last letter that Paul wrote. He, we probably think that he was expecting to die quite soon. So it's a bit like his last will and testament in some ways. And he says three words which I find absolutely shocking and helpful at the same time to his young friend Timothy. He says, the three words, he says, remember Jesus Christ. And I find that really shocking because I think to myself, why is it necessary to say that? You would have thought that he would have thought it's impossible to forget Jesus. But evidently it isn't at all impossible to forget Jesus. To get disconnected from Christ. One of the things we have to be so careful about, and I'll talk about this in the next session, is to make sure that we're keeping on learning from him, drawing close to him. And I'll talk about how to do that in the next uh, session. We're never, none of us, doesn't matter who you are, we're never going to exhaust all there is to know about Jesus. Paul talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. In other words, you can't get to the bottom of him. He's unfathomable. We have to be able to say, not only I have been born again, but we have to be able to say currently, as of today, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the problem with a hundred books to read before you die, or ten places to visit, or this music to listen to, or these games to play is, you could read all those hundred books, you could visit all those places, you could listen to all that music, you could do all that sport, and you know what? You still wouldn't be satisfied. You wouldn't. You might think you would, but you wouldn't. You know, I, I kind of think in my dream world that if I could watch the next five Ashes series all around the world and England won them all, I'd be satisfied, but I wouldn't. Well, I nearly would, but I wouldn't. <laughs> because the only way you save your life, the only way you find fulfilled life, is to abandon it to the source of life, which is Jesus Christ. And the big challenge for us is, are we doing that today? An incident that helped me a lot with this is um, when I was back in Salisbury as uh, vicar of St. Paul's there, and I'd invited someone that I'd heard uh, on a cassette in those days speaking, a guy called Paul Negroot. I'd invite him to come and speak. And Paul Negroot was a Romanian pastor. And uh, he um, was studying in London. I really don't know. I think it was just under the hand of God, a moment of um, great grace, that in a year where he said he wouldn't speak anywhere, he just for some reason said, yes, I'll come and speak to your church. So we were having an evening service at 6.30, and at 6.30 there was no Paul Negroot. I never met this chap, but I thought, oh dear, poor fellow, I, I hope he's remembered he's coming. So we get, start with the worship, and we go through our 20 minutes of worship, and there's no Paul Negroot. So being a man of immense resource, I decided to turn it into a communion service, and we have communion. And, and, and after 
kind of 15 minutes of, of communion. I still can't see Mr. Paul Negrete. And then this shabby figure comes in the back, wearing a dirty old Mac, looking like the old Detective Columbo on a day off. And, and, and I re- realize I don't know who this chap is. And he comes to the front, and he, he, he shakes my hand. He says, I'm Paul Negrete. I said, Paul, it's all yours. Preach. And he takes his, his, um, his coat off, and he, he talks to us, and he tells us absolutely awesome stories, incredible stories of living through uh, great persecution under the Romanian uh, dictatorship. He tells us about how his, he got threatened and told that his children would be beaten up, and they were, and how his daughter got raped on the way home, and how his wife got tortured, and absolutely dreadful stories, but also about the love of God. And then he comes back to the rectory, and we're having scrambled egg and bacon for supper, and we have him for supper. And it was over supper that he says this thing, which is, i never forgotten. He's just kind of chewing away at, at his um, bacon, and he says, yeah, but you know, those were the easy days. These are the difficult days. So I look at him and say, yeah, what do you mean by that? He said, well, in those days it was very easy, Rupert. We only had one decision to make every day. And, and the decision we had to make every day was, are you willing to lose your life for Jesus Christ? Would you die for him? Those were easy days. He says, today, it's so much harder. Today, there are a thousand decisions that you have to make. And it came home to me that he was making a point, really, our Christianity can die a death of a thousand qualifications. It's, it's the little things which become big things and standard things. And Jesus himself gives us three indications, doesn't he, of three particular things that will choke your fruitfulness if you're not careful in the parable of the sower. And the aggravating thing, the really, really annoying thing about the things that will choke our fruitfulness, the thorns and the weeds, is that they grow without being cultivated. You don't have to try for these things to come and throttle your faith. You don't have to do anything for the weeds to grow well. All you and I have to do is nothing. Uh, They grow imperceptibly and incrementally, and they just take over. Luke has a rather scary little phrase. He says, as they go on their way, that's as followers of Christ, just, you know, as you just live another day, they come and they choke your fruitfulness. And he, he names them, Jesus names them, the worries of this life. Anyone ever found that their faith has been unproductive because you're overcome by worry? A lack of trust, basically. The seatfulness of wealth. And the desire for other things. Or as Mark puts it, the pleasures of this life. Come in and choke the word and make it unfruitful. I still marvel at how perceptive Jesus is. That as he analyzed the challenge and problem as he stood in front of a crowd 2,000 years ago, he's still nailing the major challenges of my generation, your generation. I'm sad to say that I know so many people whose red-hot face has become cool, cool, cooler, cooler, almost to the point of extinction, but not quite, because of just these kind of things. Things that actually the world think of as marvelous. You know, tremendous amounts of, of wealth and riches. As I come towards a, a close, I just want to say um, some general points today. 
in relation to our past and maybe even our present and our potential for fruitfulness. Because in conversations I've come to see that many people actually sit at a place or live in a place where they are full of regrets. And they say to themselves, probably very rarely articulated out loud, they wish they could have chosen a better life, a different life, a different path. And I want to say, you and I, you didn't choose your path. You didn't choose it. But God will use it. When you look at the life of Moses, one of the things that's so striking you can't miss is it has a very unpromising beginning, really. His CV for the first 80 years would have ruled him out of most jobs. He was a misfit. He was cast adrift by his parents, literally. He was adopted in Pharaoh's family. He, he was a murderer. He was on the run. He, he looked terribly limited in his scope. What was he doing in that um, instant I read out at the beginning? He was just plodding along as a shepherd on the far side of a mountain watching sheep. A life can't get much duller than that, I wouldn't have thought. Day after day, day after day, day after day, day after day. Until one day, God stepped into his life. And time and again, you and I will meet people and read of people. You wouldn't have chosen, I wouldn't have chosen, but God chooses to go and bear fruit. You know, Paul, who we think of as a super apostle, was an ethnic cleanser going down the wrong road. The fisherman, Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Remember that Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, but actually it's a story of two sons. And one of, them we, one of them we instinctively hear about and know about, this guy who makes a total hash of his life. And he makes himself repulsive. He squanders everything he has. He wastes his life. He ends up in pig's will, which is like the worst that a Jewish person could do. And the other was the stay-at-home kid. But he messed up his life in a different way. It seems that he thought he could kind of live a goody-two-shoes kind of life and somehow just get into the father's good books by conformity. And maybe Paul's pre-conversion life is a bit like that, trying to just live to please God without actually knowing God, as it were. And the danger of both these sons, obviously, the one who squanders his life, but the one who thinks he's a success in life, And I suppose as I was praying about this talk and thinking, what would stop people of my age and people uh, of this kind of stage from following Christ with a radical intensity? And it would be success. Simply the ability that you've shown you have what it takes to make it in life. You're now secure. You have a home. You have achieved your ambitions. If you'd have seen your life now 25 years ago you'd have been pleased with it and it's easy to park God in the wings but the thing is the father has to go out to both these sons and he does with a huge amount of love for both and he says to the one who squandered everything come on home we must start again I want you as part of my family I want us to live life together now and he says to the son who's always been at home but never been in love with the father come on in Come on in, let's party together. Let's start afresh. Because there's fruit that will last that can come from your life. And I want to say to us all, I don't know your your story. I don't know if you've grown up in a loving home or if you've grown up with rejection and hardship. I don't know if 
you've done dreadful things or people have done dreadful things to you. But I do know that God can restore those years. I do know that God can use everything you've been through to his advantage, for his kingdom. He can redeem it. And I do know that he says to us, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and I've appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. You're welcome home, he'd say. And now let's go forward and live life together. That's the essential. That's the building block. We've got to get to the start line together. Got to wake ourselves up and say, come on, we're in this adventure together to build fruit that will last. So I'm going to lead us in a a prayer. And uh, then we'll think what we do next. Let's pray. Be good just to pause for a minute and and dare to ask God the Father where we are at with Him. Just quite how current our surrender is to Him, our sense of living to please Him is. Weekends like this are a a lovely opportunity, really, to come back face-to-face with the God who invites us into his presence, who really does say to us, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will refresh you. And it's a good opportunity to uh, re-enlist, to say to him that we're willing to get in the wheelbarrow and let him push it, as it were. We're willing to surrender and receive the love he has for us and the forgiveness. Father God, I want to pray personally that kind of a prayer that would ask you to look upon me with your love and your mercy and your kindness and your forgiveness. Because I can't hide from you the days and the times where I've lived keeping you at arm's length. Not really willing, not even wanting to go in your direction. So I thank you, Lord, for the reminder of the scriptures that you call to us to follow you and pick up our cross daily. And we want, I want, to exact that kind of exchange with you, to ask you, Lord, to forgive me, to ask you more than that, to lift the burdens off my shoulders which should not be there, to ask that I could just give them to you and do the exchange, receive your forgiveness and your love and follow after you. And I pray for the joy that should come with that, the freedom of knowing that I belong to you now. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give me an undivided heart to follow after Jesus. And we pray together that the time we spend over this weekend together would encourage one another and ignite a passion to follow you, Jesus. That as a church, St. Andrew's would really light up 
North Oxford and beyond, as a place where you reign. We pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.